the hard shoulder. With Nissan. Number one for petrol in Ireland. Number one for electric. Nissan. Innovation that excites. This is News Talk. This is the hard shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until seven o'clock. Now, Graham Linehan is a prolific writer, and first and foremost, that is how lots of people will know him. One of the co-creators of Father Ted and the writer of series like Black Books and the IT Crowd and others. There are many, many other people who will know Graham Linehan for the role he plays in debates and discussions, mostly online, around trans people and trans rights and. He is very active in that space, to put it mildly. He is on the side that would be described by his opponents as anti-trans and transphobic. And they would have very, very nasty things to say about them. They would say, in turn, that Graham Linehan has said some awfully nasty things himself. Graham would describe his position as being on the side of children. He documents all of this in his new book, Tough Crowd, that is out now. And Graham joined me in studio a little bit uh, earlier and we actually recorded this interview. We're going to play it out in, in, in two parts because there's just so much to talk to him about. I mean, there is his career, his prolific career. I mean, he he was responsible for a huge part of the kind of the Irish cultural tapestry of the last kind of 30 years, which is Father Ted. And then there is the fact that his career and his reputation and a lot of his relationships have been torched because of the position he's taken when it comes to trans issues. So look, it, it is a complicated issue and he is a complicated man and we got through an awful lot in our conversation. I should say as well that some of the things that they are going to hear, that they're going to hear Graham talk about in this interview, they're going to have a real problem with. And there are some sensitive issues as well that he touches on. So maybe if uh, people are of a sensitive persuasion, they might want to distract themselves for the next uh, few minutes. Uh, but Graham, like I say, he joined me a little bit earlier to talk about this uh, and more. His new book is Tough Crowd. Like I say, complicated issue, but I started quite simply. I asked him how he was. I'm good. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, listen, uh, congratulations on the book, um, as I say to anybody uh, who writes a book and available in all good and bad bookshops um, as well. Uh, <laughs> I like the way you're covering yourself there um, uh, by saying you say it to everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, you wouldn't, I, want, you wouldn't want people to think you liked it. I, I, listen, I, before, I, we, before we go into it, can I just let people know, because probably we're going to speak about a certain issue over the next little bit. But I, I, no one really knows that it's about the making of Father Ted and the IT crowd and comedy writing. Um, so I just wanted to just kind of quickly put, slip that in uh, because, uh, yeah, I don't think people know it. Well, well I, 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 I hate to disappoint you. I was actually going to ask you about that, Graham. Um, oh, good. Oh, great. We're, well, we're OK then. Because I get the book is kind of two books to a degree. Um, you know, there's there is... There is life until that issue you mention uh, that we will get on to. And, yeah. and then there's kind of life afterwards. And yeah, the life before, I mean, so many people listening will, of course, associate you with um, Father Ted and the IT crowd and, and, and other projects. Um, it struck me as well, reading it, that, I mean, there's, there's, there's an element of advice in, in, in your retelling of your story, isn't there? When it comes to comedy and comedy writing. Yeah, well, you know, one of the thing, one of the first things that I uh, was cancelled uh, was cancelled when I started being cancelled was a was a comedy writing course I was going to do in Australia, uh, where I basically had, um, you know, a kind of guide to writing a sitcom from 
from the premise to the to the final edit and uh yeah that was the first thing that's that's sitting in a folder unused but i always felt that it's a kind of a natural thing for for people who are getting older in comedy to switch to you know trying to let people know uh let the next generation coming up know certain things you've learned because um because you know i think comedy in general is a young man's game you find that like i remember i'm friends they, I believe they used to fire writers who were over 30, <laughs> like like something in Logan's Run, you know? Um, and it makes sense, you know, because young people in the past, I think it's slightly different at the moment, but young people uh, gen- generally tend to be very uh, adventurous and say things that are shocking just to get to a, a more interesting joke that you never thought of. Uh, but that's kind of like a loose, wild form of creativity and over the years, I've learned how to take those moments and try and put them into stories with setups and payoffs and, you know what I mean? And and trying to create characters that people uh, kind of fall in love with, you know? Um, I've been more successful at that than in some cases than others. I think, I don't think anything, I'll ever make anything that was as beloved as Father Ted. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, when you come, when you kind of accept those things about yourself that like, you know, you've probably, um, hit your peak as a comedy, <laughs> uh, writer yeah. and, uh, it becomes easier to kind of let go and, and, and give people tips, you know? And I like, I like tips myself. I love picking up writing tips here and there, you know, from, from various different sources. Is, the, is so, there an element of, of personal struggle in, in coming to terms with the reality that, you 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 can't you're not going to replicate Father Ted in terms of kind of popularity and cultural significance. Uh, no, I don't know what I can't explain it because, like, I mean, you know, if I thought along those lines, I would never work. I would never try anything. Mm. So I wouldn't have written IT Crowd or Black Books or any of these other shows. And those other shows have fans who worship it. You know. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, it was our biggest audience, I think, outside of Smith & Jones, the first the sketch show that we kind of, that broke us into the business. Um, uh, and it, it was a cultural shift, you know, it, it, at least whether it caused it is one question, but it certainly marked it, the cultural shift that was happening in Ireland, uh, where people were just beginning to relax a little bit about some of the, um, uh, some of the way they'd been, Binded by the church. I'm not sure that's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. It was a slight feeling of oppression still lingering, and we were coming out of it. And Father Ted just gave people, I think, a nice, safe way of doing it. Um, you know, it's why it's why we were never too satirical. You know, we didn't really, uh, we never really attacked uh, the church scandals, except for one joke. Um, because, you know, it was a it, we we Arthur had uh, relatives who were priests, and he was really fond of them. And you know, I I had priests at my school, and they'd never you know they they were always quite fair to me. Um, so we didn't we didn't have it out have it in for them, <laughs> not the same way Dharma would have because Dharma tangled with the Christian brothers, I think, who obviously um, everyone who came across uh, you know barely survived, and I think that also pointed to why Dermot's uh, sense of humour was more satirical than ours and, and more pointed in a political way. But funny enough, weirdly, just by being silly and following our nose in terms of what we found funny, 
it it kind of took on a satirical element anyway. Um, and yeah, it just all it all came together, mm. you know. And it's like it is like a form of magic. If 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 Jeffrey Perkins, our producer, hadn't produced that first series, it, you, no one would know about that house in the middle of Clare, you know, <laughs> because because you know he was the one. We were we didn't know it was an important decision, and he was just looking through a big pile of photographs, and we were like, yeah, what about that one? And he's like, no, no, of course not, you know. And we didn't even know what we were looking for, and then finally he. He just he he found the parochial house, and he said, "This is it, obviously, this one." <laughs> and we looked at it. We were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I know what he means. That is it," because it looked like a child's drawing of a house, you know. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was it, those kind of magical moments that came about because of Jeffrey's um, experience in the industry, and you know, and and our kind of relative. Um, our hunger to be interesting, but also knowing mm. because our first sitcom wasn't wasn't a success. Also knowing that it had to be good, it had to be good. If it wasn't good on screen, we we may never get another chance. And also, we were so nervous that Irish people wouldn't like it. That was another reason it had to be good. You well, know? well, it it would obviously be made different today because the, the 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 cultural context and the backdrop is different. Uh, and but. Do comedy styles evolve? Like, well, you know, and and this kind of brings us back to what you would be teaching if you were doing that to to students of comedy, to young writers today. I mean, yeah. and I'm not ta- I'm not talking about you know kind of the, uh, the 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 inevitable question about kind of uh, wokeism and do you have to be careful about what you say and all of that. I just mean in terms of comedy styles, like do do they evolve between generations? Um. Yeah, I would imagine they do. They usually just seem to take the form of a deep dislike of the previous generation's uh, uh, tastes. Like, you you know, at the moment it's happening, as you say, in, in a rather extreme way with kind of wokeism. But like someone pointed out recently that when Ben Elton and all the kind of uh, alternative comedians suddenly decreed that, 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 uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Benny Hill mm. was, uh, you know, sexist and uh, all these things. They successfully just destroyed his career. You know, he he uh, he never really had a show on after after that. You know, it was um, I think everybody, all the executives were too embarrassed uh, about it. And you know, his was uh, <laughs> then I remember for about twenty years afterwards. Every time there was a Vox Pop on the street and they spoke to these taxi drivers, they'd go, what's your favourite comedy? And they'd go, Betty Hill, <laughs> every single time. And it was like, you know, they were resentful of, of you know, what was essentially a working class, a favourite of the working class um, being taken off air by a bunch of Oxbridge types, you know. Um, uh, so, yeah, but so so then it happened again with 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 those guys. And, and I know that... Um, I know we don't want to go too quickly into this stuff, but I know that uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock, they they've stopped touring colleges uh, because uh, the audience uh, just argues back to jokes <laughs> and says, you know, that's sexist or what do you mean by that? All this sort of stuff. And um, it all they all want to turn it into a kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a Politburo meeting or something. Um, so they've given it up. You know, so I think there's a difference between tastes changing, uh, which is usually a subtle and slow um, uh, process. Uh, and and people saying, actually, you can't make jokes about that. 
That's that's a different thing. So, um, and I think the reason why it's different is because of the uh, kind of artificial accelerated uh, nature of the internet. You know, basically everybody's learning the same things to be offended about. Everyone's agreeing on the same lines. Mm. And uh, they're doing it by coordinating online. They're not doing it consciously. It's just like it's it's fashionable, you know. It's a it's another reason why um, why it spread so far. And sometimes, like when I hear that argument, I you know that there's part of me instinctually that kind of nods along in agreement, and then there's another part that says, uh, "Am I kind of are my seven Graham here kind of sounding a little bit like kind of two old men raging against the dying of the light?" Sure. No, I get that completely, and and you know. That's another reason. You no, know, kind of why. Ah, young people today, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but as I say, that's the reason I would, I would personally, you know, my plan was to concentrate more on teaching, you know, mm. uh, and concentrate more on passing on advice, because you know I think younger people will be tuned to the social changes that are going on better than people like myself, you know. Um, but having said that, again, as I say. There's a different difference between changing tastes and uh, a kind of um, uh, feeling that if you sit, if you tell the wrong joke, your career might be over. I think that's that's not good, and it's it's not really changing tastes. It's more like um, it's more like a, a, a group of people have power who shouldn't have power, you know. Because it's a very it, you know mm. as I've discovered over the last five years, it's a very serious thing to destroy someone's livelihood, you know. Um, you know, I've, I've now been in, uh, I'm friends with, um, children. These are in the latter half of the book, but a children's author, Rachel Rooney, who, whose, whose career was destroyed for writing a book called my body is me, which was simply a book to discourage dysphoria in children, you know, a little mm. toddler's book remind kind of connecting kids with their bodies, you know, a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and uh, they destroyed her career. You know, she walked away. She had to walk away in the end because the bullying was so bad. They compared her to uh, people who do conversion therapy. You know, and um, Gillian Phillips, another writer whose whose career has ended. Rosie Kay lost her dance company because um, she told a story to the dancers, her own dancers, about nearly dying in childbirth. And they, and she said, so, you know, the differences between my husband and me in terms of sex are important. They mean something. And for that, they destroyed her dance company, you know? So uh, it's, it's a serious thing. And it's not really like previous uh, censorious uh, movements because the means now to which, which, with which you can destroy a career mm. are, are so, there's so many of them suddenly. You can write letters to advertisers. Uh, you can do boycotts. You can you can um, you can do fake screenshots, which is something that happens to me. I get I get people uh, uh, faking screenshots where I'm talking about sharing uh, dick pics with with women on Mumsnet. You know that's one of the things that was uh, shared around about me. So basically, you've got a an, an audience, um, some of whom not all, most people are are lovely and decent, but there's a kind of a um, core of uh people who, who just know their way to around the internet yeah and they're kind of using it to destroy people they don't like when you 
first became aware of that. So you described the trip to Australia getting put on ice, uh, whereby yeah. you were going to go and kind of do this project, this um, comedy education project, we'll call it. Um, how conscious were you at the time that this was kind of the, the beginning of kind of... Uh, a, a long, slow process of kind of, well, of, of of character assassination is how you might describe it. I mean, the people who are doing it might describe it differently, but let's, you sure. know. Yeah, well, no, that was the first moment where, it, I think it was either, I think that was the first moment. And it was a significant uh, moment because I'd spent a couple of months uh, getting the course together, mm. uh, trying to make sure that it made sense, that it, it wouldn't confuse people. It was in the right order. I re I wrote it and rewrote it, and and soon I had like a kind of a you know series of cards uh, that was going to take me through the through the uh, uh, the day, and um, yeah, suddenly that was gone, and so was my fee, which uh, which you know I, I I I it was pretty good, you know, it was like the kind of money that would have meant I could sit back for a while and try and come up with a, a new funny idea, you know, mm. but, but, um, but yeah, suddenly that fell away from under me and it was the first sign. I mean, it was such a significant blow financially that it was, it was when, you know, the ten, and I, 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 I hope you understand, but I don't want to talk too much about my, my, my wife, but like, uh, because, you know, she's suffered enough because of this. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the loss of that income was one of the first things that put pressure on our marriage, you know, um, and they kept coming. Uh, had you a I sense, had you a sense though, that they would keep coming, you know, when that first, when that after, after first the second or third. Book, okay. I, yeah. That's like when <laughs> a guy called me one day and he asked me if I would like to uh, direct a series uh, that's on now called Only Murders in the Building, I think, uh, with with Steve Martin and Martin Short. Now, I've worshipped Steve Martin from the moment I became aware he existed. And so I was absolutely thrilled. And uh, I put down the phone and uh, went down and told my wife, you know, what was at the time a, a rare bit of good news. And uh, walked back upstairs, sat down at my computer and found out that the job had been uh, rescinded, the offer had been rescinded. And I said to the guy, we, we, we've we literally just put the phone down. And he said, yeah, sorry, someone else uh, stepped in, you know. And I know exactly what happened, you know. He was kind of sitting on it, you know, because these things, you don't, you don't announce them to people. And then when he got it, he went out to the office and he said, hey, everyone, we got Graham Linehan. And someone in in the office said, "Oh, he's a bigot," <laughs> you know. And 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 if you hear he's anti-trans, boy, that word, that that charge of transphobia or or bigotry in that sense, that's enough just to get anyone mm. to pull the plug, you know. And in in that moment, like, do you kind of hang your head, you run your finger through your hair, and do you think, Jesus, why why did I get involved in that? Like is is that one of the moments where there's maybe a, a no? A, I mean, those an element of self doubt. No, well, look, here's the thing, and this is where we 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 don't want to get too deep into the weeds at this point, I guess. But here, here's like to to boil it down to the most important aspect of this, right? Is uh, I believe that transitioning children is a, a gigantic medical scandal. 
that is just now coming to light. And I think it's ruined a lot of kids' lives. Um, just just out of curiosity, before we we got on, I went on to uh, Just Giving, the uh, fund, fundraising, crowdfunding site mm. um, in the UK, and I put in the words top surgery. Top surgery is a kind of cutesy word for double mastectomy that these young girls are t- are told if you if you have this procedure you will become a man along with testosterone you will literally be a man this is what these girls are told you know um and the results for top surgery for people funding a top surgery and a crowdfunding a top surgery uh is 37788 results now even if some of them are are, are not you know accurate like some are for i don't know so something else entirely or a game called top surgery or something like that. But I doubt, I doubt really any of them are. That's 37,000, nearly 38,000 girls who are raising money to cut their breasts off, you know? And that's what for me is the bottom line of all of this. I don't think it's true that these girls are going to be happier if they put, cut their breasts off. I think they're being told a, a pernicious lie a worm that is being placed in their brain, you know? And unfortunately, the entire media, uh, government and and kind of uh, social structures, including like the NHS over here and, you know, various institutions in Ireland, are all agreeing with this ridiculous idea, you know, Uh, that, that you can remove a part of a person's body and it will solve a mental Mm. problem. So I I think that that is important enough to fight no matter what the cost. No, but I, I, yeah, and we we might kind of explore where that comes from in a moment, but I I guess what I was asking about was in the moment, I mean, even the most kind of fervently religious, you know, have moments where they doubt their faith. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder... It, do you ever have those moments? Is it is it when only in the murder only murders in the building when something like that, you know, gets pulled? Like, is the, is the, do you have an equivalent of of moments where you doubt doubt your faith? Well, I let me put it this way: uh, it, it, mine is not the faith. The faith is the people who think that if they cut their breasts off, they will turn into the opposite sex. That's where the faith lies. Uh, I see this as simply another, uh, uh, you know, rather like when we were writing Father Ted, as another religion that's gripped not just Ireland this time, but the world, you know. And I always resent uh, religious people having control over my life, you know. It was one of the reasons why we wrote Father Ted, uh, even though it was silly and uh, kind of attacked its targets with a big rubber mallet. Um, it was still, you know, uh, born of uh, finding, um, you know, beliefs in ridiculous things, uh, uh, a, a funny topic, you know. I think the same thing exactly of this movement, uh, but except with the difference that they are far more powerful than the Catholic Church were in, in the 90s when we wrote Ted, you know, and, and far more um, uh, malevolent. You know, the their preferred uh, tool is destroying livelihoods. So, um, so yeah, and and also I'll say one other thing. When I was beginning to 
investigate this and speak to different people associated with it, mm. I became friends with the people who blew the whistle at the Tavistock. And I became friends with people like Stella O'Malley. And she told me what these kids were going through and why they were going through it. Uh, and the more I heard, like, for instance, the big one of the, the most kind of awful yet valuable things to me was meeting a man whose daughter was taking testosterone. He had he'd fallen off the wagon. He'd, he'd, he'd given up drink. And then he'd just come back from a two-week bender because he could not convince his daughter to uh, to not take testosterone. And he was watching his daughter disappear before his eyes. Her, her, her voice was deepening. Her, her jawline was changing. She was developing these more masculine features. Um, and he, you know, he felt he, he went back into alcoholism briefly. Uh, I, I can't forget these people, you know, I know two, I know two victim rape victims in Scotland who are self-excluding from Scottish rape crisis services because, uh, the, the head of Edinburgh rape crisis, uh, Edinburgh rape crisis is a, is a trans identified male who said something along the lines of, um, what did he say? He says, even bigots get raped. And he told women who literally couldn't have um, a man in their space because they're trying to heal uh, after, in, in one case, a very violent rape by this young, of this young girl who wrote a piece for my blog about it. Um, they can't go to these spaces. They can't get the help they need. Because there is suddenly a ridiculous idea abroad that, you know, these women don't have a right to a space free of men, you know. So, again, it's, I, just, I just meet too many people whose lives have been negatively impacted by this. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, a society-wide problem that we at least need to speak about. And, you know... I'm sure you, you, I, I don't know what you think, but it's very rare that people speak about this anywhere, you know, and there's a number of reasons for that. You know, it's, it's it, the trans movement does not like scrutiny. So, it, so it developed a um, catchphrase early on, uh, no debate. And every time you tried to talk about the issue, you would be accused, accused of uh, debating their quote unquote right to exist. So yeah, the argument to make is that the questions you might pose about, trans people, which we would have posed yesterday for people listening in our surveys about, you know, participation in sports and things. The argument is, mm. if you replace the word trans with black, for example, or with gay or with women, you know, or, or any other group, they would say, you know, you wouldn't even ask those questions. In fact, you'd be kind of hounded out of kind of uh, 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 the media industry, for example, in our case, if you did ask those sure. questions. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, do, 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 no one knows what trans means. Trans is a, a completely fluid uh, a word that means everything from poor, like, tormented Ellen Page to Eddie Izzard, who's having a whale of a time, you know? And it's like, it's like this: these two people have nothing to do with each other, you know? Ellen Page is someone who has dysphoria, uh, very severe mental health problems that she spoke about in her book, and she has obviously... Uh, you know, grasped at, at this idea that she's trans as a, as a as a life belt, which is what a lot of young women are doing. Mm. You know, a lot of young women who feel a natural discomfort with their with their puberty or with being a having a sexed body in, a, in an unbelievably sexist world. Um, 
But someone like Eddie Izzard, you know, a few years ago, Eddie Izzard, he said a brilliant thing. And we all, we all supported him. He said, they're not women's clothes, they're my clothes. And we all thought, yeah, you know, that's great. Do what you want to do. But now he's going into women's toilets. And it's like, well, no, Eddie, because like, uh, if you know, not everybody knows who you are. And when you approach them, they don't know if they're seeing a safe person or a person like Barbie Kardashian from Limerick Prison, you know, or 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 Adam, uh, what was his name? Adam Graham in Scotland, mm. the double rapist who's nearly placed in a women's prison. So so there's all these kind of um, a mixture of experiences carried under the, the umbrella trans. And unfortunately, good and bad people are being mixed together. And there's a kind of mass misdiagnosis of yeah. people who, who have other problems. And so when you say, you know, trans people like black people or like whatever, um, the, the word trans hasn't been defined well enough for us to know what we're even discussing when we talk about trans people. And every time we try to discuss it, even, even the attempt to discuss it is cast as bigotry. And anyone who, who any civil rights movement that wants to avoid scrutiny and avoid asking for what they want has to be looked at with deep suspicion. When you talk about Ellen Page, you know, there'll be people now immediately and they'll text in and say, um, it's Elliot Page and it's he, him. Yeah, I'm not playing. I'm not playing. Because so why not? I, like, you know, because there's really complicated um, issues and we're kind of, we're skirting, we're t- touching on some of them. And I mean, we, we, we would need all day, all week, all year to really get into all of them in great detail. But, but the... the you know, the approach from some people, even some people I think who are quite confused about some elements of this is, you know, the least I can do maybe from an empathetic point of view is I'll 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 use the preferred pronouns and whatever name somebody wants to go by. You know, if it makes them yeah. happier and gives them a sense of validation and allows them to, you know, flourish even in their own mind, even if I disagree with it, then, you know, it's kind of churlish of me not to. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally understand that point. And I, you know, I have trans friends within this they're very, very much disliked by by trans rights activists because they agree with feminists on all this. Um, and I'll often say, like for instance, there's someone I know, Debbie Hayton. I'll often, I'll often use he, him pronouns, and then and then let him know later on. Hey, look, I, I was interviewed and I used he, him pronouns. He totally understands because what's happened recently is that the these kind of uh, a very noble. Uh, um, thing that people have in that they do want to be kind and they want to help people and they don't want people in dis they don't want to cause further distress to people who are already in distress. Yeah. But but my argument is that I don't think it's helping a lot of these people. I it's like the way I would compare it to is um you know a lot there's a lot of crossover between anorexia and a trans uh a trans diagnosis. Um and You'll often see on the photographs of these young girls who've had um, uh, double mastectomies is you'll see uh, self-harming scars all around their arms. And it's like this double mastectomy is just the latest of of a series of self-harming scars. I don't think it's doing the right thing to tell these kids that they're actually boys. You know, I think it's causing them harm. And I think when they get older and they realize uh, what they've lost, um, they're going to be, I, I, I don't know what the fallout is going to be because like 
the whole of society lied to them, mm. not just not just um, the people who convinced them online, which is which is something that goes on a lot. So it, it, it just seems that everybody has kind of come to a series of um, uh, decisions uh, on this yeah. subject based on very, very little information. But are you not guilty of suggesting that, you know, because there are these problematic cases, then all cases therefore are problematic. Like, is there is there nobody, is there no situation in which you would say, yeah, I, I will use the preferred pronouns? Because we're not talking about a teenager or a kid or somebody who is self-harming or anorexic. We're talking about an, a, an adult who just decided, you know what, I want to live as a woman. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I uh, this will get me in trouble with, with uh, some of my feminist friends, but 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 I, I would, but I would only do it in non-public places. I wouldn't do it um, Why? online. Well, because again, we're living through a time when they're trying to say that Adam Graham is a woman, and Adam Graham raped two women and was nearly put in a woman's prison. So if but, we say but by that, but by refusing to do it for Adam Graham and doing it for some other people, are you not? If you do that in public, are you not acknowledging in public? Look, there is nuance to this. And there are kind of shades of grey. Is is your approach not a kind of a bit of a sledgehammer approach? Well, I l- l- I think the sledgehammer has been taken to women's rights over the last few years. I mean, what 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 we're talking about is is effectively uh, removing uh, single sex spaces for women, because if you're suddenly if suddenly the whole of society is playing along with this pretense that Eddie Izzard is a woman simply by putting on a dress, then it removes from women one of the only weapons they have because women on average are physically not as strong as men but the big the big kind of weapon they have in those kinds of public situations is the ability to make a fuss so what seems to be happening at the moment is a whole generation of young women who again want to do the right thing want to be kind want to be um uh, empathetic uh, are being told that they're not allowed to make a fuss if someone strange follows them into the toilets with them now, it could be the nicest person in the world. It could be Eddie Izzard, you know, which is a great story. But unfortunately, no one knows what a person is until until it's too late. And women have evolved for years to know the differences between men and women so they can keep themselves safe. What's being said at the moment is that those differences do not matter and that anyone who, who has a trans identity, and this is another thing, this is a self-selecting group, many of whom do not have surgery. Anyone with a trans identity can go to any female space. Any man with a trans identity can go into any female space to the extent where they're in women's sports, taking their medals and places on podiums. It's absolutely outrageous. And I still can't quite believe that uh, I meet the resistance that I still do on on the matter, you know? Can I ask a a final question? And it's a question I know you've been asked before, so bear with me because I don't mean it in the same way. And it's whether you've got any regrets about going down this road. And and it's not, well, that's the the context in which you're generally asked is about going down this road. My my question is more about regrets in terms of your approach because there'd be, even some of your fellow travellers, I think I'd be right in saying, might have misgivings about how you approach it. I mean, do you regret the fact that you're kind of, you, you, you are so adversarial and the language that you use is so adversarial when you talk about kind of pedos and nonces and nascent Nazis, that it allows people to dismiss your concerns about those things because they can just say, he's just a nasty bigot. 
Graham Linehan. I know, but you know, you know, you, Do you know, if you approach it's like the nature of my job is I have these kind of conversations that are that 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 are confrontational and adversarial every day. And actually, sure. it's very hard to be confrontational with somebody who's coming from a, a, a place of empathy. You, you, it, it utterly diffuses your kind yeah. of rage. And I just wonder, like, would that be, do you look back now and think, God, would, would that be a better approach? Well, you got to understand, right? Like, if you look through my tweets or, or, or my my everything I've written on this subject, they find like one or two things that were said in anger or frustration or whatever it happens to be, and that suddenly becomes a, the the story. Like the 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 original Nazi thing came from a, a podcast I did with someone, and if you listened to it, you would see that I, you know, it, it simply was not how it was reported. And Pink News took it and said Graham Linehan calls trans rights activists Nazis, you know. And I and I didn't, but that then became repeated by Newsnight, who threw it at me six or seven. Well, times. I don't. I come on. I don't think you're using nice and fluffy language about them, and it's just the odd insult. No, I I hate trans rights activists. I think they're evil. I think anyone who comes after people's jobs, tries to get them fired, uh, tries to get them cancelled, they they're they're evil. And I I I I say that to make a distinction between uh, trans people who, as I said earlier have a huge range of different experiences that have brought them to where they are. And trans rights activists who are, some of them are even trans, like there's a married father in uh, in in Dublin who is a psychotic trans rights activist, you know? It's the straight man who's, who's getting into arguments with trans people, gay people, and anyone he disagrees with on this. You know, he spends all his time doing this. He's like, he has no skin in the game. He just enjoys being sadistic to people online. You know, so so it's like we're fighting some of. Is there a bit of uh, pot kettle black there. No, because like, what what am I doing? I'm fighting for these kids to not be mutilated. He's been he's fighting for them to be mutilated. You know, yeah, the, the no skin in the game and just spending his time getting into arguments online. But I do have skin in the game because I've met like all these people who I'm representing. Two, you know, the rape victims in Scotland, the 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 you know, and and even the ones I don't know, the women in Limerick prison who had to spend uh, their incarceration with Barbie Kardashian. You know, like like you know, in terms of fighting this evil, which is what it is, we all have skin in the game. Like, you, you know, you have a, a, a mum, a, a wife or a sister or a daughter. You know, surely you want them to be safe when they go into women's spaces. Surely you, if they get interested in women's sport, you want them to have fair sport. What I can't understand is why everyone isn't fighting this for the women in their lives, if not the women themselves. Graham Linehan, the writer of Father Ted, the IT Crowd Black Books and Tough Crowd, his uh, new book. Graham, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed that. 